Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero. I am your host for today, Professor Matt Hannon, and this episode forms the third in a mini-series all about community carbon offsetting. So if you haven't listened to the series already, I'd recommend listening to the first two episodes, as this is a bit of a deep dive. You'll find them both in the podcast feed. So, where do we start? Well, back in March 2023, we held a workshop at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow on carbon offsetting for communities. This was funded by the Scottish University's Insight Institute and Strathclyde Centre for Sustainability. And the event focused on Scotland's fast-growing nature-based carbon offsetting market and what the potential implications might be for local communities. It also considered the potential role communities could play in shaping and governing this emergent market. So, What do we mean by nature-based carbon offsetting? Well, here, landowners choose to invest in natural forms of carbon sequestration, such as afforestation or peatland restoration, to generate carbon credits for sale on the open market. And these credits are bought up by organisations wanting to offset their own carbon emissions by funding reductions or avoidance elsewhere instead of cutting their own emissions. Now, in the first episode of this mini-series, we heard from Alistair McIntosh about the meaning of community and what role communities could potentially play in the booming nature-based carbon offsetting space. The second episode was a panel debate all about how we frame, evaluate and facilitate community benefit from these carbon offsetting schemes. And today's episode explores the state of the voluntary nature-based carbon offset market today. Specifically, we discuss how these projects are financed, who owns them, and how they're governed, as well as how wider market and policy structures shape the form these projects take. And today's episode therefore acts as an important precursor to our last episode in the miniseries, which focuses much more on communities, exploring how these offset projects could positively or negatively impact communities, as well as what actions could usefully be taken to ensure carbon offsetting supports community wealth building rather than undermining it. So just before we get into the pod, a reminder that if you haven't already subscribed to Local Zero, then please take two seconds to hit that button. And don't worry, it won't just be my voice you hear today, but from a wide variety of experts who are at the event. 
As with any new marketplace, the first question investors will always ask is how does the project generate money? When will these revenues come online and what are the risks associated with the projected levels of revenue and expenditure? Now, without a solid business proposition, finance is unlikely to be forthcoming and the market will fail to take off. At the event and when we undertook our earlier field trip to the Central Highlands, we identified three things. The first is the financials of these projects are not entirely transparent, and so it is unclear where key assumptions are being made, such as the future cost of carbon credits or the extent to which land prices will appreciate over time. The second is that we find that project owners or landowners are targeting multiple sources of revenue generation, not just carbon credits. In short, these credits are not the primary source of revenue, and in some cases account for a relatively minor revenue stream, potentially dwarfed by revenue generated through forestry, agriculture, tourism, and also potential for biodiversity payments and credits, another marketplace which is starting to gain traction. These projects must therefore be designed to accommodate multiple revenue streams. And finally, different revenue streams will also come online at different times. For carbon credits, this will normally take upwards of five years. And as noted before, other revenue streams may be targeted that will have different time horizons. Felling, monoculture, commercial timber to restore peatland, for example, may generate a quick but short-term revenue stream, whilst ecotourism or sustainable agriculture may take longer to establish. Now, neatly summarising these points, we hear from Ian Callaghan, a climate finance expert. I'm involved in uh, climate finance in various ways as an intermediary and advisor, mainly in emerging markets, actually. So it's interesting to see all this in the uh, Scottish um, context. What I was most struck by was a lack of transparency as to the economics of these projects. And I think if you're going to have uh, discussions about uh, how much public money goes in to get uh, projects going and how much community money uh, ends up um, coming out, then you really need to see how these projects are working, what sort of length the return periods are over, whether increases in land values are factored in, at least as far as the investors are concerned. Because otherwise, I think you're having a discussion about fairness, particularly on the community front and the public money front, um, which is happening kind of in the dark. So I think it'd be great if, uh, if we could see some kind of sample spreadsheets uh, from some of these projects and uh, just um, begin to understand how the economics fit together. Now, on the price of carbon credits, it was noted how not all credits are made equal in the eyes of those buying them, and by extension, those investing in these schemes. The notion of charismatic carbon was highlighted, whereby credits generated by some projects might fetch a higher price on the market than others. Because there is no set price for carbon in this voluntary market, we find that carbon credit price can be affected by various project characteristics, such as where the project is located, or the wider benefits the project may afford nature and its local communities. In short, some projects may attract a premium if they provide customers with that warm, fuzzy feeling associated with a perception that these credits are making a positive difference beyond pure carbon capture. Now, to expand upon this a little bit more, we'll firstly hear from Grant Moyer, the Chief Executive of the Cairngorms National Park Authority, and then Pat Snowden, the Head of Economics and the Woodland Carbon Code at Scottish Forestry. In essence, is there something that we can do to raise the value of carbon associated with it being done in a national park, but also being done in a way that benefits other things other than just straight carbon. So this is the whole thing about things are being done that also have significant biodiversity benefits, or maybe flood management benefits, maybe community benefits. 
and accrediting either schemes or individual projects to actually say that this has the, for want of a word, the national park stamp, that this is a good scheme and thus it's worth more than a standard scheme. Again, we're just looking at these things at the moment and seeing whether that works, whether it is actually true, um, whether there is a, a premium uh, value in the market and how we could actually set that up across not just one national park, but if you were doing that across all the national parks, would you start to get a, a bigger market around, around some of those things? In terms of selling carbon units, it could be to a wide range of organisations. There is the potential to stack with other types of credits like biodiversity credits in the future. That is very much a current topic of discussion. But we have had people specifically say nature and community do attract a premium in terms of the carbon price. I won't dwell on this, but the point here is that uh, smaller schemes can benefit from an easier process for validation and verification. Um, and there is the opportunity for schemes to group together to reduce the costs as well. Given some of the uncertainty and risk around revenue generation from these offsetting schemes, there was a call to ensure that further confidence was provided to the market in terms of the price these projects will be able to secure for carbon credits into the future, especially the rate and timing of return on investment. This would help to alleviate risk and attract external investment into these schemes. Some recommended market structures to resolve the situation include some of those borrowed from the energy market, such as contracts for difference, where there is a guaranteed strike price for carbon, where the recipient would be topped up if the market price fell below this strike price, but also they would have to pay back if it went above this strike price. As well as other solutions, these include a guaranteed floor price for carbon or guaranteed purchases at specific dates at the going market rate, such as at 2030, 2040, 2050. Now, to explain this a little bit more, we're going to hear from Grant again. One of the other areas that we're looking at at the moment with, and this is more, uh, this is more theoretical, is the work around contracts of difference. So are there other ways that we could set up the peatland work in Scotland to try and develop a different way of doing things that, I suppose, tries to work a lot like some of the renewable energy side of things that has been done over the years. So we've been looking at different models around current potential funding models for people restoration in Scotland, um, looking at the current model, looking at things like guaranteed floor price, looking at government buys post-2050 carbon credits, and then again, the contracts for different side of things in terms of strike prices around how that all works. These are all just theoretical, but again, we're looking at what the different options are and what could potentially work better than the current approaches that we have, because ultimately what we're trying to do is scale and pace of peatland restoration, and we need to up the scale and the pace of that work quite significantly to meet current targets, but also to meet future targets in terms of those 2030 and 2045 side of things. So this is the, the contract for difference model. Um, it's a top of private payments for carbon credits. So it depends on what the price of carbon credits get to in terms of what the government would pay. And then obviously, once you get over the strike price, then people start to pay back into the government side of things. So it's, it's quite an interesting model. Uh, I know that lots of different people are, are looking at this, and it's just one that we're certainly interested in as the, the park in terms of, is this an opportunity to look at these sorts of things um, and how we could potentially do that? And I suppose one of the questions around something like this is, how does that then flow back into what community benefits would come from this? And how do you make sure that there's still funding coming back in from um, the carbon side of things into, into communities? Central to any revenue is the question of who is buying what you're trying to sell. 
In the context of carbon credits, things get a little bit more complicated insofar as the integrity of the seller of credits is only as strong as the integrity of the customer. The main concern here is that credits are sold to customers who are not making a concerted effort to cut their in-house emissions. Buyer integrity standards are being actively explored by government in a bid to ensure that only customers who are making significant strides towards cutting their own emissions are permitted to buy these voluntary credits. In lieu of these, some programmes are implementing their own checks, such as the Cairngorms Park Authority's partnership with Investors Palladium and Santander on peatland restoration. Together, they have their own ethical charter in place, which serves to screen the types of customers who might buy their credits so that they avoid selling to companies who are not serious about reducing their carbon emissions and thus might be accused of greenwashing. We're going to hear from Grant again on this issue. So the peatland project... I'm doing working with Palladium and Santander and Peatland Restoration site in, site in the Cairngorms. And one of the key things for me is we've got an ethical charter in place around all this work. So um, we're only partnering with organisations that made a public commitment to reaching net zero emissions and have signed up to a credible initiative to deliver on that commitment. Also, not partnering with any um, organisations with a history of lobbying against climate action um, and also not uh, partnering with any organisations that have uh, a history of uh, environmental damage and not partnering with any organisations that have primary source of income from fossil fuels. So there are some specific things around, I suppose, the ethical charter that we're following to try and make sure that um, I suppose some of those things around, I suppose, the accusations around greenwashing and things like that, that people are, I mean, we need to make sure that we're doing the right things with the right people. Um, and that key thing for me is that the offsetting side of things should only be for those parts of an organization or work that can't be reduced through other means. I think that's one of the clear things about that pathway to net zero, which is that your pathway to net zero can't be able to offset all our carbon. It's got to be reducing, and then what's left over, you can potentially look at offsetting in the short term, and also in the long term, hopefully you can then reduce that as well. Now, there is also a concern about those customers buying carbon credits being located many thousands of miles away from where they are emitting carbon. It's not dissimilar to discarding waste into your bin at home and ending up in landfill tens of miles away that you never see. This can serve to disconnect us from the impact of our emissions and dilute our sense of responsibility for these. And this excellent point was made by Dr. Jill Robbie, a senior lecturer in private law at the University of Glasgow. When we're thinking about who's buying carbon units as well, it's important to think about the power these organisations have in order to enforce a particular land use through carbon trading. This decision-making power could be very far away from the particular location of the carbon project and the local community. So at the moment, non-UK companies can buy carbon units, but it's only to offset their UK emissions. If we allow the enforcement of these land use agreements by non-UK companies, you can see that the location of power is getting further away from the local community. This situation becomes even more exaggerated and risky if the UK carbon market is linked with the global market, which allows non-UK companies to offset their emissions for non-UK based emissions. So now we turn to finance and investment for these voluntary nature-based carbon offsetting schemes. We've explored how these projects generate revenue, but as with any project, capital investment is necessary to get these nature-based schemes off the ground and generating income. The afforestation of moorland or the restoration of peatland are expensive and take time. 
They demand significant amounts of patient capital to bankroll the project, in the expectation that a good few years down the line, the project will start generating revenue. So, where might this capital finance come from and why? An oft-cited report from the Green Finance Institute, called The Finance Gap for UK Nature, highlights that Scotland faces a finance gap to restore its natural capital of between £15 and £27 billion over the next 10 years. Now, this gap represents the shortfall between the cost of delivering this natural restoration versus the money that's been committed and planned going forward primarily from public spending. The discussion at the event then turned to the assumption from policymakers and others that private sector investment from institutional investors like banks and pension funds will be absolutely critical to filling this finance gap and kickstarting the carbon offset market. By extension, this assumes that public and citizen finance would be insufficient or simply unattractive to those leading the projects. Now, this logic is captured perfectly by Nature Scott, Scotland's nature agency, who announced in 2023 a partnership with private finance investors that could mobilise £2 billion into landscape-scale restoration of native woodland. This example was examined in episode two of the miniseries in more detail. Whilst many of the event contested such a central role for private investment, the follow-on question was what role should public investment play alongside private investment? There are already huge sums of public money being invested in Scottish natural capital projects, such as through Scotland's Forestry Grand Scheme and Peatland Action. If much of this is flowing into privately owned projects to support their revenue generation, then what is the appropriate role of public finance? The issue here is that public funds raised through taxation via the general public can be used to support privately owned natural capital projects, such as woodland or peatland restoration, which could then generate and profit from the sale of carbon credits. Furthermore, it remains to be seen how much of this revenue is returned to the public purse via taxation and also how much is channeled directly into the local community. We now hear from Mark Reid, Professor of Rural Entrepreneurship at Scotland's Rural College, in reaction to a question from Ian Black, Professor of Sustainability at Strathclyde Business School about the appropriate role public subsidy in finance could play. Hi there, Ian Black. Um I'm a professor of practice in the, in the business school at Strathclyde University. Mark, I just wanted to interrogate a couple of the, you know, the assumptions and also the paradigms sitting underneath this approach. Mm-hmm. So first of all, there's the assumption that we need private money and that carbon offsetting uh, markets will reduce carbon. Okay, the, the, these, these are essential assumptions of which you're under, uh, uh, under, uh, fit under the you know, incredible detailed work you've then done. And then that the paradigm from which the solutions come is that the existing economic system will provide the solutions for the, the problems of which the current economic system is produced. So the current economic system is the reason we have the climate breakdown. And I wanted to, to proceed on this as a, because I think it's really important for the Scottish government uh, perspective. And I, I enjoy the fact that you're smiling and you know that you're going to come in and take my legs away from me with your answer. But, but within that 44, so let's go back to the, the, the figure. I think it was 44 billion pounds worth of, uh, of, ex, of private capital. How sure are we that we actually do need, and I think it's 9 billion in Scotland, that those figures are absolutely rigorous and um, have high integrity before we go and ask companies to invest uh, and companies that have a long track record of not being trustworthy in delivering what they um, say they will. So how sure are we about that 9 billion? Because everything else runs from there. Yeah, yeah, good. I think you're right to question that that figure. For me, I think that this uh, probably has 
a more political significance uh, than it does um, uh, scientific integrity. As with all economics, uh, there are huge assumptions that have to be made. Um, and I think the, the, the message that uh, has been communicated alongside that, that work from the Green, Green Finance Institute is uh, that there is a there is a gap and that it is big. Uh, exactly how big that gap is um, is another matter. Uh, and so for, for me, the key thing is that we use public money responsibly. And so that uh, where we do have uh, uh, public money, that uh, that is used to address market failures. Uh, and so those could be in terms um, of the, the habitats, land uses or ecosystem services for which there are not uh, existing markets. Uh, there is no market for those things. Uh, or it could be for existing markets, um, uh, but in locations um, where it is too expensive, perhaps, for the market uh, to uh, to deliver those benefits, but where there may be multiple um, other public uh, goods from that work. Uh, and so I think we need to, to target what uh, limited funding we have towards market failures. Now, if we're not careful, we will see public funding going towards landowners or investors from projects that do not necessarily provide substantive or long-term benefit to the wider public. This could then further entrench Scotland's already abnormally high concentration of land in the hands of the few. We hear more from Jill Robbie on this. This can be particularly problematic when landowners and developers are provided with public funding as additional support in order to generate the carbon units, which are additional then private sources of, of income. This squaring a circle in a sense when there was a discussion of government guarantees for buying back carbon units, again, you're just providing more public financing for ways in which there can be income generated and funneled to private landowners. These factors can combine to make land even more expensive for local communities to purchase land and the risk is we create a further concentration of land ownership in Scotland. So now we turn to governance and ownership of these carbon offset projects. How we finance a project has a direct bearing on who owns it and by extension how it is governed. In short, the type and level of investment a project secures shapes who controls it and who absorbs both the risks and rewards associated with that project. Now today, a common approach to the governance of these offset projects is via two types of arm's length entity, which are separate legal entities to those investing in the offset project or who own the land the project resides on. These are firstly special purpose vehicles. These are companies set up to directly manage and own a specific project. This may often include the ownership or lease of the land where the offset takes place. These will likely be established so that different investors can own a specific share or stake in the operations of that company, likely with some degree of limited liability to manage the risks posed to investors. The money generated from that SPV's project, such as via the sale of carbon credits, is allocated between the shareholders or investors of that SPV. Now, the second type of entity sits above these project-specific special purpose vehicles. These are the investors who own a share in that vehicle. A common theme for offsetting at the moment is for one of these shareholders to be a charitable organisation that is partly responsible for governing that special purpose vehicle and is also able to capture a share of the profits they generate. 
In Scotland, these bodies are often incorporated as Scottish Charitable Incorporated Organisations, or SCIOs for short. Now, these are a unique legal form of Scottish charity and is able to enter into contracts, employ staff, incur debt, own property, sue and be sued. They also often exist before the offset project is established. They're already there. And by extension, they have a broader remit that focuses on generating local, environmental, economic and social benefit. And finally, they will also be governed by a board of trustees that represent key interests from across these different areas and, no doubt, the local community. Now, the logic of establishing a project-specific special purpose vehicle, which is partly owned by a charitable body, is threefold. Firstly, it can blend public and private finance. As a charity, they can draw down grants and social impact investments that a private company may not be able to. Secondly, they can work to support, connect and scale existing projects within the region to achieve landscape scale. In effect, they act as the glue between different stakeholders and landowners to bundle up much smaller offset projects into something which can actually affect real, major landscape change. And finally, these charitable organisations act as the party responsible for holding and distributing funds from these projects to local beneficiaries via what is often termed community benefit funds. And these funds are generated via the profits from these offset projects. We're going to talk more about these funds in the last episode. Now, at the event, we heard about two examples of this arrangement. The first was the Flow Country Green Finance Initiative. This aims to restore peatland in the far northwest of Scotland. We also heard about the Cairngorms Trust that operates alongside the Cairngorms National Park Authority. We're now going to hear more about the Flow Country Green Finance Initiative from Dr. René Kirkvliet-Hermans from the IUCN UK Peatland Programme. It's a really interesting project because it's a locally led initiative to really raise money to restore peatlands at scale. So it's combining different landowners trying to do it at a landscape scale. They're using kind of a new model, which still blends public and private finance, but is setting up a Scottish charitable incorporated organization. And they will really, that organization is there to hold the contracts with the different landowners and they can then scale existing projects within the region. So the aims of that project is really to support community development goals, create high quality jobs, carbon investments, ecosystem services, and support circular business models. So there's also an element of community benefit sharing in this project. Now we've spoken about finance and investment. We've talked about governance and ownership. And now we turn to policy and regulation. Now ultimately, markets are shaped by policy and regulation. Now, there has been a recent push towards implementing a raft of new market codes, guidelines and principles in a bid to ensure that this nature-based voluntary carbon offset market operates more sustainably and more ethically. In many respects, the market has developed quicker than these regulations and guidelines, and there is still work ongoing to devise, test and implement these regulatory structures. In broad terms, we can consider these regulatory innovations to fall into two categories. The first are carbon codes, and the second are investment principles. So beginning with the first, carbon codes. These focus on different ecosystems, for example, woodland, peatland, grassland, and constitute internationally recognised quality assurance standards for these voluntary carbon offset projects. 
Their purpose, ultimately, is to provide rigid guidelines for the generation of high-integrity and independently verified carbon credits, which buyers and sellers alike can trade with confidence on the open market. Its purpose, really, is to underpin market trust and confidence. Two of the most well-known examples in the UK are the Woodland Carbon Code and the Peatland Carbon Code. We'll now hear more about the former from Pat Snowden again on the UK's Woodland Carbon Code, specifically about why the scheme emerged and what its core design principles are. What is the Woodland Carbon Code is a question a lot of people will ask. It is UK government backed. It's a domestic voluntary carbon standard. So it's only for generating credits within the UK for organisations within the UK to offset their emissions within the UK. So it's very tightly bound as a domestic thing, which removes it from these various discussions that are going on internationally about what you can and can't do with carbon credit. And its whole purpose, and the same with the Peatland Code, is, is market trust. Um, 15, 20 years ago, there were some schemes, forestry schemes, which were criticised quite heavily because there was a lack of standards applied. And there was pressure put on the Forestry Commission at that time to come up with a standard, which led to the, uh, the birth of the Wooden Carbon Code. We started working on it in 2007. It took four years to launch it in 2011. Um, it's continued to develop since then, and it will continue to do so. It's a very sort of dynamic um, environment. The structure these carbon codes assume will have a tremendous bearing on the types of projects we see emerge and the extent to which these are sensitive to issues beyond pure carbon capture. For example, the Woodland Carbon Code includes two principles that clearly step beyond carbon. Firstly, projects should be of high environmental quality, and secondly, that projects should be socially responsible and, where possible, offer benefits to the local community. Now, for a scheme to be able to generate carbon credits, all projects should initially be able to show that any environmental and social impacts on the land area concerned are likely to be positive. Verification of the project, which is crucial to actually generating the carbon credit, relies on evidence confirming the environmental and social benefits have been delivered. Examples might include biodiversity and habitat creation, improvements in health and well-being, benefits for farming, local employment and educational opportunities. To help investors chart and evidence these impacts, the Woodlands Benefit Tool has been produced to provide a score across wildlife, water, economy and the community out of five. We'll hear more now from Pat on the purpose and value of this tool. What are the main components if you, if you want a decent carbon standard? Well, particularly for nature-based solutions, you need sound science. And that's critical. Otherwise, people won't trust that it will do what it says on the tin. Permanence is an important issue. It's something that nature-based solutions has to look at quite carefully. We're in a, quite a strong position in the UK in terms of legislation because forestry is a permanent change in land use. Um, but we also apply buffers and conservative estimates to how we calculate the carbon emissions. Basically, if a project can claim in the region of about 60% of the predicted carbon sequestration, so there's quite a wide safety net built into it. Additionality is a vital issue as well. You have to be able to show that the carbon standard is driving additional action towards climate change targets, rather than just giving carbon credits to projects that would have happened anyway. This really lies at the centre of all the current debates about um, integrity in carbon markets. It's independently validated and verified, as, as René mentioned, for the Peatlands Code. And we also have, a, we have a, the same carbon registry, which provides transparency on the use of carbon credits and avoids double counting. Sitting above these carbon codes are investment principles. 
These don't focus on any one ecosystem, such as woodland or peatland, and are generally broader than carbon offsetting too, offering high-integrity investment principles for all natural capital investment. They are considerate of the balance of ecosystem functions that a parcel of land supports, such as water quality management, flood risk management, resilient supply of crops, carbon, or biodiversity outcomes. In effect, these principles will lay out some rules of the game for natural capital markets and, by extension, carbon offsetting. Examples include the UK government's Nature Investment Standards Programme, which is being led by DEFRA and the British Standards Institute. There is also the Offset Specific Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, or ICVCM for short, who have produced the Core Carbon Principles, which outline a set of new threshold standards for high-quality carbon credits. But closer to home is Scottish Government's Interim Principles for Responsible Investment in Natural Capital. And these present a values-led, high-integrity market for responsible investment in natural capital that helps deliver policy goals for economic transformation, climate change, and biodiversity. And at the same time, these are designed to provide community benefits that support a just transition. We now hear from Kate Dowan, Head of Sustainable Nature Finance at Scottish Government, about these principles in more detail. Last year, our Minister for Environment and Land Reform announced our interim principles for responsible investment in natural capital. And this is our first attempt, really, at setting out our kind of minimum level of sort of expectations for the market to develop. We've got an aspiration to establish these principles with further guidance around them, potentially depending on wider legislative timelines with a bit more more kind of teeth. We did a stakeholder engagement event on these principles um, with the Scottish Nature Finance Pioneers Group last year. And the kind of feedback that we got was that, well, they all look good on paper, but how are you going to put these into practice? Um, where's the guidance going to come? What are the expectations kind of with more detail? And how can you strengthen these so that they are kind of generally followed? So kind of getting into the to the principles in a little bit more detail. The first one is around investment delivering integrated land use. So this is about how can we make sure that investment isn't just having like a kind of sole carbon focus. This is also linked to the work that Scotland is doing, the Scottish government is doing around a well-being economy and also quite linked to the fact that these investments should really respond to local circumstances so there's not a kind of one-size-fits-all approach. The second um, and, and third I'll take together, so this is investment that delivers public, private and community benefit and demonstrates engagement and collaboration. So between um, Highlands and Islands Enterprise and the Land Commission, lots of work has gone into developing some draft guidance and so that's just been out for consultation, some, some draft guidance on um, community benefits and I think it's really valuable to look at that and reflect on that a little bit more. And, and it links to that discussion and debate we were just having with Grant about what constitutes the community benefit and what are the circumstances locally, what direct benefit looks like. Is it important for that community to have some sort of local wealth fund or is it more important to have local housing or jobs or you know pr wider kind of provisions like um, lo local infrastructure like schools and GP services and things like that. 
Then there's the principle around investment that's ethical and values led. This is linked to principles, the UNPRI and principles for responsible investment. That, that That's the kind of guidance that we have there at the moment. We need to do more work to think about how we can kind of expand that. And then investment that's of, that's of high in environmental integrity. So that's investment that uses these kind of government-backed codes that we have that are really rigorous, really evidence-based and have really high integrity, um, but also buyers of these carbon units or environmental outcomes doing that with their own Paris-aligned decarbonisation plans in place. And then um, finally, investment that supports diverse and productive land ownership. This is around all of the questions around whether whether land ownership is actually necessary and promoting models where you potentially don't need to kind of further sort of all of the issues around land acquisition and you could potentially work with kind of existing landowners or looking at different models. It is important to note that many of these market and investment principles are still in development, whilst others are purely voluntary guidelines such as the Integrity Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets Framework. In time, these could well become formal regulations that are mandated by governments and or the certification bodies that govern the carbon codes, i.e. non-compliance means that carbon credits will not be forthcoming to the investor or landowner. Either way, there are a number of open questions about how these principles ought to evolve into the future to ensure a high-integrity market and one that can benefit local communities. To explain a little bit more, we hear from Professor Mark Reed about some of these open questions. Mm. Finally, we need some core principles to bring consistency across all of these mechanisms and markets. And where possible, I think it'd be useful if these were built on international initiatives like the International Council for Voluntary Carbon Markets, or ICBCM, so that we've got a, a certain level of consistency with uh, global uh, voluntary markets. And I think if you look at uh, ICBCM's consultation, um, uh, the answer to that is going to be to an extent, uh, not all of the recommendations will apply in the UK, uh, or at least if we try and apply them, they will uh, fundamentally undermine uh, our existing markets. So here's my first attempt to think about the kinds of principles we might want to shape ecosystem markets in the UK. Uh, based on an analysis of UK and existing markets and principles proposed by international bodies like ICBCM and a whole load of others. Um, so you can see just in the screenshot kind of the level of detail that you've got here. Uh, and we're just going to look at that left-hand column in terms of those plain English, I hope, uh, 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 principles uh, in each of these different categories uh, just now. Um, uh, and so this uh, this builds on, on a load of really great work going on at the moment. Uh, Scottish government have already published their own interim principles. DEFRIT will be shortly publishing some of their own principles. And the BSI initiative that I've been talking to you about is leading a process now to prioritise the most important of these principles that need to be adopted, ideally across UK markets. How can high integrity, socially just ecosystem markets deliver transformational benefits to local communities and other local rights users? How might this go beyond community wealth funds to facilitating strategic development that sustains vibrant rural communities long into the future? How can policies, codes and standards and market infrastructure be designed to ensure communities are protected and derive significant benefits? And how can communities engage with and shape ecosystem markets and the emerging, emerging policies and other mechanisms that govern these markets? 
So to conclude, I think taken together, I think the, the, the emerging framework that I described here uh, could, in theory, be used to design and help us to operate high integrity ecosystem markets in the UK. I think looking across what's happening internationally, we are at the cutting edge of a lot of this stuff in the UK. And I think a lot of people are looking in at what we're doing internationally as well especially as we think about this together over the next couple of days. My hope is that as we develop and scale these markets, communities aren't just not left behind. They are front and centre in our attempts to responsibly build and scale these markets. Now, whilst much of the focus is on carbon codes and natural capital investment principles, much of what dictates who can access the voluntary nature-based carbon offset market is bound up in questions of land reform. If one cannot gain access to land, then one is at a natural disadvantage to access this emergent and potentially lucrative market. Policy examples relating to land reform include questions of how we tax land, legislation that can give communities first refusal to acquire land, public interest tests that determine who is eligible to purchase large land holdings, and also land management protocols that dictate how landowners should or should not manage their land. And who better to hear from about the priorities for land reform, including the role of the community in nature-based carbon offsetting, than Alistair McIntosh. I'm Alistair McIntosh. I'm an independent scholar and writer on climate change, community, spirituality, the things that give deeper meaning to life. My reason for being here is that carbon offsetting is an entirely new dynamic that is landing on Scotland and is creating new apparent value out of the land of Scotland at a time when the priorities of many of us, and certainly the priorities of the new Scottish Parliament at the beginning of this millennium, was land reform, so that we didn't just rewild, but we also repeopled. And the problem was creating new forms of value in the land is that if there is not community agency, if communities lose control over their own place because of inflating capital values and hopes of return, that disempowers communities. So I am here today to see what voice can policymakers ensure that communities are given. Do policymakers really understand communities in rural areas, which is primarily affected? Will it champion that cause and ensure that it is properly integrated in with our land reform agenda? There's two main types of community. There are communities of interest, for example, a local shooting club, a bird watching group, landowners, venture capitalists who have a common interest in what can happen in a given place. And then there is a much wider overarching community of place, such as a community council or a community land trust, where these things are democratically accountable to the principal stakeholders as the people who live in or round about that area. Community takes us very deep into what it means to be a human being. We talk of soil, soul, and society. Soil, our relationship with nature. Soul, our relationship with what it means to be most deeply human 
and society our relationship with one another. The community is not just another word for society. Community is about an integrated approach to living, such as we see well expressed in the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, which form part of Scotland's national performance framework. So we're kind of partly there, we're theoretically there in terms of policy dynamics. And to me, the importance of this two-day conference is to carry us further. And the fundamental question, do communities have control? Do they have agency in what is happening on the land in which they live and for which they have historic and current-day responsibilities? So I hope you've enjoyed that deep dive into the world of carbon offsetting and hearing from some of the foremost experts on this fascinating topic. You've been listening to Local Zero, and if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and colleagues and stay tuned for more episodes taken from this conference. Please remember to check out our website, localzeropod.com, where you can listen to the back catalogue and search for episodes by keywords or topics. You will also find the other episodes that are part of this mini-series on community carbon offsetting. But until then, bye for now. Produced by Bespoken Media.